Amen. Amen. Good morning. If you are here for the first time, my name is Tim. I'm the other pastor here. And uh, you're jumping in in the middle of our series in Mark. And so uh, you never know what you're going to get from week to week. Last week, we went through the Lord's Supper uh, thematically, historically, exegetically, as much as I could cram into one sermon on the Lord's Supper. This week, uh, a text like this, we're normally tempted to breeze through or skip over. Um, But what I want us to do is to see how something like this leads us to self-examination. Because often we can read a text like Peter, who is so impetuous and so full of himself that he stands up confidently and corrects Jesus again and again. And we can tend to think, I will never do what Peter would do. I would behave so much better. I would, I would obey exactly what Jesus told me to do. I would take what he said. I would take it to heart, and I would apply it to myself. We're all thinking that. But none of us would really do that. And this text is going to show us this morning that we are much more like Jesus' disciples and much more like Peter than we care to admit. And so as often is the case, as we've seen throughout Mark, is that Peter is an example for us. Up to this point, not often what to do, but what not to do. And, and it's a good time to pause and examine ourselves. But the beauty of Mark's account, as we learned early on, is that Peter is the main source of material for Mark. Um, excuse me. Yeah, yeah. It, Mark was, was a disciple of Peter. And so Peter, in his later humility and maturity, does not hide from his flaws does not edit out his times of foolishness. And when we go through an epistle like 1 Peter or 2 Peter, you're going to see Peter's maturity. And so that will be the study we do after Jonah. And so on Wednesday night, we're going through Jonah. After that, we'll go, after, we'll go through 1 and, and, and 2 Peter. But it's amazing to read Peter in the Gospels versus Peter in the epistles, um, even as he grows with his, with his kind of tensions with Paul and Galatians. But as I was thinking about it this week, there's a lot of parallels between Jonah and Peter. These are impetuous men who think they know better than than God. They've got their own idea of what ministry should be, and they're often negative examples. And so for us this morning, we're going to take a similar approach to how we have been in Jonah and applying this text to ourselves, and hopefully there's a lot we can learn from and grow in here. So open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're looking at a little section Uh, But we're going to pull a lot out of it. Verses 26 through 31. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you as the God of all creation. God Almighty, God All-Knowing, 
God all-powerful, God all-merciful, God all-loving, God all-just, God all-good and righteous and upright and true, and on and on and on and on. Let us never lose the awe and wonder of who you are. And in the wisdom and splendor of your majestic plan throughout the ages, you redeemed a people for yourself. Sinful people who, like Peter, have confidence in ourselves, who stumble and falter, who forget the one who sought us and bought us. But you are patient, you are merciful, you are kind. And in the fullness of time, you sent your son to take on flesh and walk among us. To go before us to the cross. To go before us to the grave. To go before us to life. To go before us to the new Jerusalem. That we may follow our Savior. Who for the joy set before him. Endured this, the shame of man. For the glory of God and the reconciliation of the saints. Pray that your spirit this morning would teach us, would guide us, would enliven us with your word. That we would not just be hearers this morning. That as we look at a text that can so often be glossed over, that we would examine ourselves this morning. We would look to what your spirit might teach us where he may convict us, where he may guide us and teach us, that we may grow into the image of Christ, that he may be glorified, that he may be exalted, that he become greater as we become lesser. And all this to the glory of God the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So before we get into our text in Mark, uh, I want you to turn to John's Gospel. And here's how John's gospel will be helpful. Because John's gospel has the, the, the most content surrounding the supper. It's interesting that John doesn't get into the institution of the supper, but he gives us five chapters of the content of the supper. Of what Jesus said, what he did, the questions that they asked. And so what I want to do to help us in our timeline, to help us fill in the gaps here, because last week we looked at the institution of the supper, this week it goes right to singing a hymn, and then they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a whole lot in between. And everything that Jesus says in between is timely. Everything that Jesus exhorts his disciples with and warns them with in these chapters, starting in chapter 13, is going to set them up and prepare them for that night, Jesus' betrayal, being handed over to the authorities, and it's going to prepare them for the, the persecution to come. And so I, I want to give a brief overview of those, those chapters and give context to Jesus' theological exhortation. So in John chapter 13, this is uh, at, in the upper room where he knows that he's leaving. Look at verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Notice, everything else that's going to happen now does not escape Jesus' purview. 
Not only that, he's well aware of it. And not only that, he does it out of love. This is not plan B. He's here willingly. He knows he's going back to the Father. And he will love them to the end of his earthly life and beyond. And then he also is not surprised with what will happen next. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and he had come from God, was going back to God. Jesus is in the driver's seat. He is in full control here. So one other detail that's helpful for us. In the institution of the supper, he breaks the bread and he separates it out. And then the cup comes later. We talked about this last week. It's the the fourth cup in the Passover meal. But there's one person who is notably absent from that cup. Skip down to verse 27 of chapter 13. Then... After he had taken the morsel, this is, um, they asked who it will be. Jesus said to the disciple that he loved, John, it will be the one who dips this morsel of bread in the cup with me. He hands it to Judas. Satan enters into him. Jesus says, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Judas was telling him, uh, "Buy buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Judas did not partake of the fourth cup. Judas did not partake of the fourth cup of blessing that we, that we um, expounded on from 1 Corinthians 10 last week. So there's someone who is noticeably absent. When Jesus says, this is a new covenant in my blood, drink of this. Judas did not drink. Judas was absent. And so everything else we're going to see here in chapters 14 through 17, Jesus is speaking to his true disciples. Jesus is speaking to the 11 who are truly elect. And chapter 13 ends with Peter's denial. And John brings out the flavor of the conversation, verse 37. Peter says to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answers him, Will you lay down your life for me? And this is a question. Will you? Really? You'll lay down your life for me. Are you sure? Remember those words because they're going to be a bitter pill in your mouth in just a few hours. But then what follows is the beautiful context of the I am statements that we love. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 14.6. I am the true vine. This is in the context of knowing that Peter is going to be sifted, that the disciples are going to be tempted, and that the early church is going to be persecuted. Jesus says all these things on the eve of his crucifixion. He is preparing them for what is coming next. And he tells them, and he's going to go, verse 3 of chapter 14, he's going to his father's house, he's preparing them for what will come next, but he's going to prepare a place for them. And I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know, may know the way to where I'm going. I wish I could get into more of John. But I want you to see the sense here. This is Jesus getting his affairs in order, getting his disciples in order before he leaves. And we read from our corporate reading earlier in chapter 14. Verse 25, he tells him why he's saying all these things. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. 
But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The Spirit is peace. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say I'm going away. And I will come to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He tells them, take heart, believe. He knows what's going to happen in just a few moments. He's going back to the Father and he says, rise, let us go from here. Now, we don't know if, he, if they rose at that very moment or he rose and they, and they kept speaking in the upper room or they talked on the way. Either way, this is what's happening after the meal, heading to the garden or right before they, they head to the garden. He goes on and says that he is the, the, the true vine and the world's going to hate you. The, the ones who hate him are going to confront them in the garden very soon. Chapter 16 Uh, Here's what I think is important for our purposes. Look at one through four. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. It's going to be a big theme in our text, falling away. Jesus is using the ultimate sense here. They will put you out of the synagogue, all of Jewish cultic life. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. Jesus is preparing them for what's about to happen. Look down verse 12. I still have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he, speak, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Jesus also tells them, it's better that I go, that I send my spirit, so he can remind you and declare these things to you. Jesus knows that they will be tempted, they will be tried, they will be persecuted, and the greatest gift he can give them is his spirit to dwell within them and prepare them for the conflict that is to arise. He even warns them, it's going to get worse. Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered. Another theme of our text. Each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You notice the repetition here. Take heart, do not fear. It's going to get hard. You're going to leave me alone, but I'm never truly alone. And then finally, chapter 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer. He's interceding for the disciples within their hearing. He is praying out loud to the Father in front of them, showing them, giving them a glimpse of how he will intercede for them. This is amazing, and we can't go through all of this. He starts with the glory of the Father, everything he is doing to proclaim the name of the Father, and then his appeal to unity and uh, delivering them from the world. But I think verse 15 is helpful for 
our text. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He knows that they are about to embark on a spiritual battle, that the evil one will want to lead astray even the elect if it were possible. And he's not removing them from the world, he's leaving them in the world as his messengers, as his emissaries to go out to all the nations and that the Father would sustain him and sanctify, sustain them and sanctify them through the Spirit. After all this, then chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with the disciples across the brook Kidron. This is where I think they sung to him. It was customary when you finished the Passover feast to finish with the last of the Hallel Psalms, the Hebrew word for praise, Psalm 113 to 118. So I want you to turn to Psalm 118. So now we get into our text in Mark. The first verse in Mark, they went out and they, or they, they sung a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. This hymn, we don't know exactly what it was for sure, but I guarantee you at some point within the evening, probably at this point, they sung, sung Psalm 118. How do I know that? I'm going to show you in just a moment. Here's what I want you to know about these, these Hallel Psalms. These were sung during the three great festivals. These are still sung today by Orthodox Jews. Their rhythm of worship was one of reading declaring the promises of God, and then singing his praises in response. That's why we do what we do. Some of you have remarked, I didn't grow up in a tradition where we sing hymns or we sing songs after a Bible study or after a men's study. There's nothing more beautiful than 30 men in the top of their lungs singing praises to God. But we do this because this is the tradition that we come from. Jesus sang hymns. Jesus encouraged, encouraged his disciples by reminding them of the promises and the good, the, the good things that God has done for, their, for the people. So looking at Psalm 118, here's why it's so important. So I'll, I'll send out a couple of videos during the, the week. There's some uh, great renditions from modern Jewish Christians and uh, modern Orthodox Jews. It's amazing to watch the contrast. Because when Orthodox Jews sing Psalm 118, they start with verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The psalm begins where it ends, but they really nailed down verses 2 and 3. This is where, um, if you see them in Jerusalem, they're shouting and they're dancing and they're repeating this again and again and again. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. And they love to jump over to Verse 27, the Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. They love all of the imagery that is pro-Israel as a nation, pro the house of Aaron that, that lifts up the sacrifices and the temple. And so they lean in to the first half of the psalm. But if you are a Jew who is truly Jewish and you know your Savior, you know Yeshua, you know the Son of God who has come to to give his life for you, you sing the second half with gusto. I want to pick up in verse 14, but I'm going to begin in verse 22. Verse 14 to verse 21 is all about salvation. But notice the section that usually the Orthodox Jews will not sing with gusto. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This, verse 24 is referring to verse 22 and 23. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Yes, we use that on Sunday morning. That's what we rejoice in for sure. But the day that we rejoice in is when the, when the stone that the builders rejected became the cornerstone. The day of the new covenant in Jesus Christ's blood. That is the day we rejoice in. Save us, we pray, O Lord. Hoshana, um, this is the, the song that was sung when Jesus was on the, the, the donkey coming into Jerusalem. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Imagine singing that with Jesus, the one who the song is written about should give you goosebumps. He sung it full well knowing that it was fulfilled in their hearing. This is what was going on as they're preparing to go up to the Garden of Gethsemane. His steadfast love that endures was prepared for them. So I want to jump back into our text in Mark. So I want you to kind of get the scene of what was going on. What he told them in John, what they, what they sung before going out. And then the next bombshell that he drops on them. Last week, or two weeks ago, the bombshell that one of you who's eating with me in this room will betray me. And then the next phrase that cuts to the heart of every one of the disciples, you will all fall away. Here's the first important thing I want you to notice before we get any further. Notice Jesus knows that they are weak and unfaithful, but he came for them anyway. He's still going to the cross knowing that they will fall away, and it is not their faithfulness that drives him to the cross. It is his. Notice he still loves them. He still covenants with them, fully aware that they will fall away, and he knew this before he chose them. This is how steadfast his love is, as we just saw in Psalm 119. So Christian, take heart. This is how he sees you. He knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your your, your frailties. And he knew you before the foundation of the earth and knew everything that you would ever do. You think he's surprised when you doubt? You think he's surprised when you're scared to proclaim his name? You think he's surprised when you choose the world over him? Just like he was in full knowledge of what the disciples would do. Sitting right in front of him, he knows you. This should be a great encouragement to us. That it is his steadfast love that is unfailing. So be comforted that he is not shaken, he is not moved. His love endures forever, even when we fall away. So I think it's helpful to understand what this word Fall away means there's just something scandalous about it, scandalizo. It's, it's a stumbling or it's a rock of offense. It is, it is um, kind of falling off the path. But what Jesus uses here is a passive sense. They were not seeking to fall away. They were made to fall away. 
There was some, there was a force acting upon them. This is not something that they went out to do. And so they're not setting out to fall away, but they weren't really watching out for stumbling blocks either. So there's a, there's a hiking parallel to the Christian walk as I was thinking about this. No one intends to stumble. Um, and I'm not talking about Florida hiking where it's flat and, and easy. I'm talking about up and down roots and, and, and rocks. You know if you've ever hiked to any elevation or you've ever gone any, over any difficult terrain, you have to be careful of your step because those roots come out of nowhere and the, the rocks can get stuck under your shoe and no one ever stepped, stepped, or starts out to stumble. But if you're just kind of in taking in the view, not paying attention to your surroundings, you can stumble. If you're overconfident, say, I've got this, and take off running. If you're off your, your, your guard, the little things that you're not aware of or you're not looking for are going to trip you up. And especially if you're hiking with someone else and you go before them and you see there's a root here or a rock here and you just step right over it and let your brother or sister fall behind you. This is the Christian walk. We don't set out to stumble, but we're too busy looking at the butterflies or thinking about what we have to do tomorrow or whatever. We're not watching where we're walking. And so this is what's happening. But this is not a permanent falling away. It's not like the falling away that we saw earlier in the, the parable of the sower in the rocky soil um, that, that withers up and dies. Nor is it the falling away that we see in Hebrews chapter 3. This is helpful for us because here's the, the other side of that. Take care, brothers, Hebrews 3, uh, 12 through, through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Okay, this is a final falling away. There's a lot of apostasy talk in Hebrews. But here's, here's the remedy for it. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here is the protection for the believer from falling away from stumbling. We encourage one another. And we remember, we remind one another that our confidence is in Christ, not in ourselves. Here's the first mistake of the disciples. Their confidence is in themselves and not in Christ. We're going to see Peter's, Peter's example in that in just a moment. But this is a common sin of Christians still to this day. How often are lukewarm, headstrong Christians, without maturity or grounding, easily led astray? These are the, there's a difference between the sins of omission and the sins of commission. You know, the, the sins of omissions are the ones that you fail to do. The sins of commissions are the ones that you plan to do. For many of us, it's the sins of omission, the sins of weakness, the sins of fear, the sins of loss of, of zeal, where we take lightly the gospel, we, we take lightly who we are in Christ, and we stumble. And we fall away for a time. We give in to our doubts and our fears. But we don't prepare each other well. We like to wear the mask. We like to wear the Sunday morning smile. You've all seen those people. I've seen many of them walk through the door like, I'm good. Every week, two thumbs up, big smiles. I can't even smile that, that big. And you know, really, you, it can't be that good. You can't be that good all the time. But usually those are the ones who fall 
the fastest and the hardest because they think they can think good thoughts and they think they can will themselves through the Christian life if they're Christians at all. But when trials come and challenges arise, they run away, they, they fall away. Here's where the disciples are. They think everything's good. As soon as I walk out of here, I'm going to be as strong as I feel right now. But I think what's even worse in our culture today, we see nothing wrong with shrinking back. We see nothing wrong with hiding, quitting. We see nothing wrong with, with, with giving up and I'll just do something later or next week, but next week never comes. It is easy to justify ourselves and make excuses for our own weaknesses and our own failings. We must be people who have our confidence in Christ because it is impossible without him. So Jesus gives them the example from Scripture that must be fulfilled here. For it is written, Zechariah 13, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. If you know where Zechariah is, you can turn there. Um, second to last book in the Old Testament. But Zechariah has a lot to say about the day of the Lord. I want to give you the, the context of the day of the Lord in verse 1. Uh, 7 through 9 will be up on the screen. On that day there shall be a fountain open up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and, un and uncleanliness. Or uncleanness, not uncleanliness. That's, that's, a, that's a plus, but uncleanness is better. So this is what is to mark the day of the Lord. But what must happen at the day of the Lord begins in verse 7. Notice the language here. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who's speaking here? This is God speaking. God is speaking against his shepherd. And who is his shepherd? Against the man who stands next to me. The Lord says to my Lord, this is God willing, promising, predicting, planning to bring a sword against his own shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. We don't like to hear this language associated with God. But he's doing it for a purpose. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. The same fire that burns up the dross, the same sword that cuts father from brother, leaving two-thirds to be destroyed, the one-third, symbolically here, shall be left alive. Those who remain after the sword, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Notice what Jesus is saying to them here. He's quoting Zechariah, which they should know. They're gonna strike the shepherd. The sheep are gonna be scattered, but the scattering is not the point. It's the ones who come back. That's the point. It's the ones who come back to him because they're really the sheep. They truly come back to the shepherd. They will be refined and they will call out to their God. This must happen. You must be refined so you can come back and cry out to me. This shepherd, this suffering servant is going to be stricken for the people. And it is God who does it. I will strike the shepherd. It's not the ones who are stricken that we should to be concerned about. It's the ones who come back. 
That is the encouragement. And so a little striking of the sheep, a little separating of sheep and the goats is not a bad thing. And I think that's going on right now in the American church. We are seeing refinement of the people of God right now. Because many think that they are Christians, but they are trusting in themselves. Many think that they are Christians because it's never cost them anything. Because their Christian life has been easy. Everyone's patting them on the back and tell them you can have your best life now. And as soon as the sword comes, they don't know what to do. This is good. Pruning is good. Refinement is good. And in the life of the believer, if the Lord is disciplining you, if he is refining you, praise God because he loves you. Because he wants you to know him. He wants you to please him. And in that refinement, he will teach you to cry out to him and draw you closer to him. So this is a terrifying thing that the disciples hear, but a beautiful thing that Jesus is doing. But that's not the end. He says, but after I am raised up, in verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. After I am raised, the bad news always precedes the good in the gospel. Yes, I'm going to be stricken. You're going to be scattered. But that's not the end. The crucifixion must precede the resurrection, the, glor- the, the glorification, and the, or the ascension and the glorification. But after all this happens, I will rise, I'll go before you and meet you in Galilee. We'll see that in chapter 16, that it's fulfilled. This is to be an encouragement. The focus is not on striking the shepherd and the sheep. The focus is, is I go before you. That's the encouragement. That's what they're supposed to focus on. You will all fall away. But the good news is I will go before you. And the good news for us is that he always goes before us. This is the encouragement of the writer of of Hebrews. We run because Christ has ran before us. We live because he lives. We can die to our sins because he died for our sins. He always goes before us. We don't have to stumble He is a light unto our path, but we stumble because we don't want to look to Jesus. We want to look to ourselves. We stumble because we forget he goes before us. But do they take comfort in this? Do we take comfort in this? Or would we we be just like Peter? Notice what Peter does. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Notice, Peter skips over the promise and goes right back to his own problems. How often do we do that? How often do we skip past all the promises in the word of God? Never leave you, never forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Nothing can separate you from my love, neither height nor depth. We can go on and on and on. But we're so self-focused that it is our problems, our situations that keep coming up again and again that stay before our eyes. Peter is us. I met with a pastor friend of mine this week, and in his uniquely southern accent he kept calling so when we get together i have pastors that i get together we get together once a month or so and we talk about what we're preaching through and how our churches are doing and all that and and i told him about mark and um and he kept calling him pete and it just kept saying it well yeah well pete denied him and pete was so impetuous and i thought it was fitting and hilarious that he kept calling him pete i'd never thought to call him pete but i'm like yeah He's supposed to be Petros. He's supposed to be a rock, but he's like Pete. He's like a little pebble right now who, who is not standing firm in the Lord. He's standing in his own strength. And so Pete says, I will not be made to stumble like the others. Even if they all fall away, I will not. Whew. 
Here's the epitome of pride going before a fall. Look at Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. This is Peter right now. Even if everybody else, even if all these other disciples who've been with you as long as I have, I won't be like them. It's like Peter standing in his Superman stance with his cape flying like I will stand tall. This is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and repeat this again and again and again because we've all had our Peter moments. Many of us are not old enough to have senior moments, but we've all had Peter moments where we think we are standing confidently as our own rock, as our own foundation, and I will never do what everyone else does. But let's think about that. How often has our pride caused us to stumble? How often has we said, I can bend the truth a little bit because I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. Or I can twist the truth just enough to make me look good and have everyone stop asking me questions. Or we could say, maybe I could glance at that thing or that woman for just a few more seconds longer and I'll be fine. Nothing will ever happen to me. I won't, I won't ever fall. Or I'm working overtime. I'm, I'm, I'm busy right now. I'll get to reading my Bible and pray to God later. Or I've heard many of you, it's like, yeah, I know I'm not being obedient, but God would understand. I've got a lot of other things going on. How often do we trust in our own strength and, and try to justify ourselves? Even if everyone else has succumbed to sin, I won't. Because I got my angel wings early. And no, there are no angel wings. And we have the Holy Spirit. Imagine if we did not have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us and Jesus is crucified right in front of us. Rome is, is poking a spear in his side or Rome is... is um, bringing him before for Pilate, they're all chained and crucify him, we'd do the same thing. We would run the other direction. Most of us with the Holy Spirit would probably be tempted to run the other direction today. This is why we looked at John 13 through 17. This is why this is helpful for us. Jesus knew we're weak. He knew the world will hate us. He knew things will be difficult. He knew you will have troubles. He promised it. That's why he gave us his spirit. That's why this exhortation to the disciples is so important. And I think we in the reformed world underestimate the power and the protection of the Holy Spirit. We have the spirit of the living God within us to teach us, to guide us, to convict us, to remind us, to all to glorify Christ. Just like our brothers and sisters on the charismatic side to overestimate the spectacular work of the Spirit versus the sustaining work of the Spirit. This is the greatest gift to the believer, that the Holy Spirit resides in you and will carry you through, seals you in the blood of Christ and sanctifies you to his glory. This is why Jesus told them that's why these passages are important for us. Because we are far more like Peter than we care to admit. So much so that in the same day, verse 30, truly I tell you this very night, before we go any further, how many times have we said to the Lord, I will not stumble. I won't do this again. I promise, Lord. And how many times is it not the same day, if not the same hour, if not the same minute, that we do the same thing again? 
This very night, Peter is standing before him with his big boy pants on and saying, I will never do this to you. And Jesus says, you'll do it tonight. Three times. We'll get into that more when we get to that section. If you trust in yourself, if you are saying you are strong enough to combat sin in your own strength, you are strong enough to follow Christ by your own will and juggle all the other things in your life, keeping Christ as one of these many balls that you are keeping up in the air, repent because you can't. You will falter and you will fail, just like Peter. It is impossible without his strength. And then here, Peter hears the words that will cut to his heart. Not only will you be cowardly, not only will you be scared, not only will you run the other direction, but you will deny me. This has got to be complete shock and challenge to Peter's confidence. Maybe not. We'll see in verse 31. But Peter, who thinks that he is the steadfast rock of a disciple, Jesus named me rock, and I'm going to stand firm. No, you're going to deny me tonight three times. But for us, maybe we've never been put in that position. Maybe denial is not our problem. But I know for sure its close cousin is fear and silence are a close cousin to denial. Every one of us in this room has been given opportunity to proclaim the name of Christ. Every one of us in this room has been given opportunity to stand up for him or to, to proclaim the gospel to someone who is lost and we have shrunk away. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor of theology and the doctor of the human mind, says this well. He says, if you have never been ashamed to openly proclaim the gospel, it is not because you are so courageous. It is because you probably don't understand the gospel. Think about those words. Because if you really proclaim the full gospel, you have to confront the sinner in a way that will cause the sinner to reject what you say and you along with it. That last phrase is what gets most of us. And you along with it. That's what got Peter. It's not the gospel that we're really afraid of. We're afraid that people won't like us. We're afraid that in rejecting Jesus, they might reject us and it might hurt our little pride. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones is dead on here. And that can drive us to silence. You can leave that up there for a second. I think this deserves a moment of silence, a moment of self-examination. Where in your life have you shied away from the gospel because you care more about pleasing man than you care about pleasing God? How many of us are guilty? We won't get into the rooster and the rest of the acts of Jesus or Peter's, Peter's denial this week. We'll be there in a few more weeks. But what you need to know when Jesus gives him the detail, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, Jesus, again, full knowledge, full control of all things, he will teach Peter through his self-confidence just like he does to us. Think about this for a moment. We don't learn when things are easy. Right now, this seems easy. 
Peter is in full confidence because, yeah, I'm in the presence of, of, of Jesus. I'm ready to go. I've got my sword here with me. I'm, I'm going to take on everyone. That's easy to say before everything goes down. But just like us, we don't learn from our successes. We learn from our failures. We learn from the questions on the test that we missed. We learn from the deal that we lost. We learn from the chicken that we burnt or the, the, the steak that we overcooked. And if you eat it medium well or well done, you overcook it. Sorry, Jaron, you do. <laughs> learn from your mistakes. But we, we, we learn when we fail. We learn when we fall short. This is the greatest lesson Peter had to learn. I love uh, Einstein has got a lot of these quotes about success and failure. Probably his most famous. He's, he says, I have not failed. I have just found 10,000 ways that that didn't work. He's, he discovered the light bulb. Or he invented the light bulb. He didn't discover it. It wasn't under a rock somewhere. He invented the light bulb. But he had 1,000 failed light bulbs. But he learned and he, and he grew. This is the Christian life. We learn from our stumbles. Anyone else in fear like you have, you have found 10,000 ways not to do it? Hopefully it's not 10,000 ways of the same sin, then you're not learning. But the Christian life is, okay, I failed and I stumbled. I'm going to watch out for that. I'm not going to do that again. I failed and I stumbled here. I'm going to watch out. I'm not going to do that again. And we grow in Christ. And then he teaches us through these failings and because he loves us. But Peter is not to the place of learning yet. He has not learned yet. Look at verse 31. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. His impulsive self-confidence cannot help him to jump out to contradict Jesus once again. Two times he is given the opportunity to humble himself. Two times. He contradicts Jesus to his face. Never underestimate our own depravity and the power of our flesh. Even if Jesus was standing in your face telling you you are weak and you will fail in your own strength, many of us would be tempted to say, no, I got this. Step aside, Jesus. I can handle this on my own. But it's impossible on our own. This is why in our last chapter, he tells them to stay awake, be aware, because figuratively and literally, they will be asleep on the job as we are tempted to do. Our last, uh, one more cross-reference I want to look at. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul does a beautiful job here of reminding them of the examples of those who went before them. The successes and the failures of everything that we read in scripture. Why are Moses' sins in scripture? Why are Abraham's sins in scripture? Why are Peter's sins in scripture? For our example. Look what Paul tells us, verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That's why we can look at Peter and we're looking at us. Because no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. However, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is why the promise of the Holy Spirit is so encouraging for us. 
because we will stumble, we will fall. We're going to look at Moses and we're going to look at Abraham and we're going to look at Gideon and everybody else like, that's me. But he has given us his spirit so that we may endure it. But it is hard to do without humility. If you are still pridefully trusting in yourself, you will not learn and you will stumble more than others. But Peter here, as we continue, last phrase, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Be careful what you are thinking. So we may ask ourselves, what's going on with, with Peter's denial? Like what's going on behind the scenes? Like is there some, some spiritual element to this? Is there some big lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us? And I think there is. It's in Luke 22. So as Luke gives this account, he adds a couple important details, and then we're going to close up with our three exhortations. Luke 22, verse 31 through 34. Notice what he includes. Luke 22, 31 through 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Peter is being sifted by his enemy. Satan demanded Peter. Jesus didn't say, no, you can't have him. You won't touch him. He's got this invisible force field because I don't want Peter's feelings to ever be hurt. And a lot of parents do this, and you shouldn't. Um, what did Jesus do? What was more important than protecting Peter from ever doing anything difficult or ever having anything happen to him? But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Think about that. Jesus, the most powerful thing he does in Peter's life is pray for him. Coming back to the high priestly prayer of John 17, I am interceding for you. I am your high priest. I am praying for you. And saints, if you are in Christ Jesus, he is interceding for you. He is praying that your faith may not fail. And guess what? If Jesus is praying for it, it's going to happen. Your faith will not fail. You may falter, but you won't fall completely. This is a reminder of the spiritual element that is going on behind it, but also the reminder of the strength and power of our Savior who intercedes for us, who gave us his spirit to, talk, to teach us how to talk to him with groanings that were too deep for words. But they all agree with Peter. They all said the same thing. They all drank the cup together. They all agreed together. And then in verse 50, they all fled together. Beware, there's another self-examination question. Beware of who you allow to speak for you. Beware of what man you are looking to for your example. It may lead you like Peter into foolishness. And the next words we will hear out of Peter's mouth are the words of denial in verse 68. So as we bring this to a close and bring all this together, I want you to remember the context where we began. This is right after the New Covenant Supper. This is right after they sung a hymn of praising God for his faithfulness and his salvation. He went to the cross for these headstrong, headstrong young men, fully aware of it. He died for sinners, he died for cowards, he died for sons of disobedience like us. 
And if our faith is in him, our faith will not fail because he went before us. He intercedes for us. Fully aware of your self-confidence or your self-deprecation. So our three exhortations or encouragements for the church this morning follow along with the three questions we ask every Bible study. How does this text teach us about or point us to Christ? How does this text help us grow in our relationship with God? And how does this text help us grow in our relationship with one another? I thought it'd be fitting that we do that. Number one, remember what our God has done and is doing in you. This is how it points us to Christ. Remember the election and drawing of the Father, the sacrifice of the Son, the sealing and sanctifying of the Spirit, and the continuing intercession of the Son before the Father in the Spirit. If you remember that Christ is from the beginning all along the way and the completion of your Christian life, it gives us much more confidence in him. It gives us much more strength in our weakness because it is his strength, not ours. Remember what our God has done in you and is doing in you. Number two, when we think about our relationship with God, how does this text help us? He knows every one of your weaknesses and still loves you. He knows you are a coward, you are a sinner, you are fearful, you are prideful, you are greedy, you are lustful in your flesh, and he still sent his son to die for you and gave you his spirit to seal you. A text like this should cause us to praise the Lord, that we are all Peters sitting around this room and God loves us anyway. And because of this, we can never fall away. If you are truly in Christ, we may stumble, but we will not fall away permanently because he holds us. He redeems us. He sanctifies us. He carries us to the very end. And finally, our relationship with one another, when we remember his grace and his patience toward us, how could we not be gracious and patient with each other? How could we not bear with our brothers and sisters in their failings? How patient has God been with you? How forgiving has he been with you? How could we not be forgiving with others? We've all had our Peter moments. We've all been in the presence of other people in their Peter moments. Thank, thank God he is gracious and merciful and patient with us. Let us praise him for that and be that way with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the example of Christ humbled himself to obedience, taking on flesh even unto the cross. Lord, may we learn humility from his example. May we learn humility from Peter's example. May these texts of Scripture be instruction toward us. May we learn to search our own hearts and our own minds and our own motivations. That we may put to death everything in us that wants to be exalted. Everything in us that wants to stand in our own strength. 
everything in us that is trusting in our own abilities. May we fall before you weak and helpless. That way we may boast in you. And you will exalt us. Lord, we praise you as a God who is faithful in all his ways. You promise to go before the disciples. You promise to send the Holy Spirit. You have done it. You have gone before us. You have given us your spirit. And you promise to return one day for us. Let us trust in that promise. Let us live in those promises. Let us stand confident in the finished work of Christ. As we look forward to seeing him again face to face in glory and celebration as the bride is brought back to her groom. And it is in his glorious name that we pray. Amen.